So, the ships that you're seeing on the screen right here, these ships were destroyed, sunk, on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. And it was one of the biggest failures in military history. It was a failure to communicate, it was a failure to drive clarity and alignment, and it was a failure to have the correct person in the job that was needed. Okay, Dimple talked about checklists. Here's checklists we've all seen, right? This is leadership checklists. We've seen these all over the place. LinkedIn, leadership training, blah, 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 blah. The lists keep getting longer and longer, and guess what? We're supposed to do this stuff 24 by 7 by 365. No matter what else is going on in our organizations, right? There's mergers, there's acquisitions. We get, by private, get bought by private equity, whatever. Good news. There's a bonus round. Anybody want to guess what the bonus round is? I'll give you a hint. We go out for the last two and a half years. Yeah, that's right. A global pandemic. Yay. How the hell do you lead through that? There's no checklist, right? What about social unrest? What about election chicanery and, and all kinds of stuff there? Oh, yeah, and oh, man, maybe there'll be a nuclear war because of Ukraine, right? These are all things that are on everybody's minds that are in our organizations. Leadership doesn't happen because of a checklist. It happens because you're down in the trenches dealing with people and the problems that they bring to the team every day. And Karen will recognize this team. This is a real team, right? So you You may have to deal with someone on your team passing away. God forbid you don't, but it happens. Or you might come in the office one day and a young mother walks into your office, sits down across from you, looks you in the face and says, do you think I should leave my husband? And you know what, Jeff? She expects an answer. Right? That's why she's there, not to tell you about it. Or maybe you have to convince a team of people to pick up their families and move across the country with you because your company restructured the organization. That would be shocking, wouldn't it, Brian? Yeah. We've, Brian and I both worked for the same company for a while. Right? Or, this is hard to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. You're standing in a hospital corridor and you're standing with an employee and her husband as they're realizing that their child is not going to make it. And the reason that you're standing there in this most intimate moment, in probably the worst day of their lives, because this is one of the families that you've moved across the country, and besides you and their teammates, they don't know anyone else in this strange city. So in this situation, yeah, don't tell me you're not family with your employees, because you are. Or in a more prosaic situation, a CEO points his finger in your face and says, I don't want to hear it again. But you know what? You look at him and you say it again because you know the idiot has to hear it again. That's how leadership works. Leadership doesn't come from a checklist, right? It comes from here at the moment. It comes from here or it comes from your head up here. FDR said, tell Nimitz to get the hell out to Pearl and don't come back until the war is won. So do you know what kind of order is that, that is? That's a do not retreat order. That's a potential death sentence. He means it. That's leadership in a moment. And that's why we talk about leadership in war. It's not because we like war. It's not because we want to glorify war. But for God's sake, we need to learn from it. And there's an obligation to learn from it.
had a particular interest in the Pacific War during World War II because my uncle served aboard the battleship USS North Carolina. He was at every major engagement in the Pacific War, including when the ship was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. On a port visit to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, he met my aunt, and they were married for 55 years. So there you have it. Whole segment of my family brought to you by the US Navy. So first thing I want to talk about is waste. There are all kinds of people in this country that wanted to fight for this country even though they were second-class citizens. Why? Because this was their home. And because they believed America was still a better idea than a Nazi future, right? Or a future run by crazy Japanese imperialists. People like the Tuskegee Airmen. People like Navajo code talkers or Japanese Americans. When I met these guys in 2009 at the World War II Memorial in Washington, I thanked them for their service. The guy on the left here puts his arm around me, goes to welcome, and then he points at the Japanese American and he says, let me tell you something. This right here is the bravest man you will ever meet. I didn't ask him what he did, but I sure as hell believed him. Speaking of bravery, this is Doris Miller. Doris Miller was a, was a ship's cook. It was one of the few jobs that African-Americans were allowed to fill in the US Navy. Sure, they could have their ships blown out from under them. They could be vaporized by a 16-inch naval shell. Or, glory, they could be eaten by sharks alive. Right? But they could not fill a combat rating. That didn't matter to Doris Miller. Doris Miller, during the attack on Pearl Harbor, dragged his captain off the bridge of the burning USS West Virginia. Then when he was done with that, he manned a mounted weapon for which he was not trained and started shooting at Japanese planes. For that, in this picture, he's being awarded the Navy Cross. That's the highest honor the Navy can award. Well, almost. Later this decade, the US Navy is gonna launch the USS Doris Miller, CBN-81. You can talk about medals all you want. But in our Navy, in the US Navy, there is no greater honor than having a nuclear aircraft carrier named after you. So, if we're gonna talk about waste, we gotta talk about 50% of the population that, that no matter how bad they wanted to fight, were not allowed to, women. And it wasn't like they weren't in harm's way. So this group of women right here was just released from a Japanese prisoner of war camp after three years in captivity. A lot of women wanted to fly, and a lot of women wanted to fly combat in particular. They weren't allowed to. The best they could do is this thing that we call the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, basically ferry pilots. They're allowed to fly planes back across, back and forth across the U.S. It was important work, but it wasn't what they wanted to do. General Hap Arnold, head of the U.S. Army Air Force, was afraid that they couldn't handle heavy bombers. Well. Here's a woman flying a B-26 Marauder. It's a medium bomber, twin engine. Here's an all-female flight crew just getting out of a B-17. This is the heaviest airplane we had in our inventory. They were pretty happy. They didn't have any problems flying B-17s all the time. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Stalin was like, you want to fight? Come on down, right? Here's, uh, these two women belong to a bombing group that the Germans nicknamed the Night Witches. 
How good were they? The Germans put a price on their head. <laughs> this one cracks me up. This one is a fighter ace. Her name is Lilia. And look at the description here. She loved to buzz the airbase. She loved to fly close to the control tower just because it pissed off her commander. Forget about Tom Cruise. He's not Maverick. She's Maverick. They were also in the infantry. They were in tanks. Here's one that's a military policeman directing traffic in Berlin. This woman was nicknamed the unseen terror of Prussia by a Canadian newspaper after she killed 60 men. And she's not even the, she's not even the best sniper, the, the Russian sad that was female. Um, there was one that came close to 300, but the picture was kind of blurry, so it didn't really work out. And let's not forget the Pacific. This woman's a captain in the Philippine resistance, and she's showing an American officer, well, you know, this is how I cut the throat of a Japanese person when I fight. So don't tell me they couldn't fight. So I said that I would get back to these ships. And I also said that this was a failure. But I'm not talking about an American failure. I'm talking about a Japanese failure because the attack on Pearl Harbor from the Japanese standpoint was a complete cluster. And I'll tell you why after we talk a little bit about the people involved. So this is the brainchild of Admiral Azaruku Yamamoto. And this is quite a guy. I mean, you could tell from this description. I mean, this guy's a party guy. He's charismatic. His men love him, etc. Big, big risk taker. He threatened to resign if the attack on Pearl Harbor wasn't green-lighted by the Japanese military. So it gets green-lighted. So he's in overall command. Under him, in tactical command, is, that, is Admiral Chuichi Nagumo. Nagumo is basically everything that Yamamoto is not. I mean, he's really conservative. He's a solid admiral, but he's not a risk-taker. So try to imagine the discussion that went on in Japanese military headquarters. Should we send Nagumo? Well, let's see. He's got a few comments. This is a really risky operation, and this is a risk-averse guy. Um, it's going to involve six of our best aircraft carriers. This guy has very little carrier experience. Um, he hated the plan. He thought Pearl Harbor was stupid. And by the way, his health is starting to fail a little bit. But you know what? On the plus side, he's been around a while, so let's just say. The results were predictable. Okay, they achieved surprise. The aircraft carriers weren't there. That's what happens when you throw a risk. First risk already lost. Basically, what they did in the first wave of attacks is they sank some old, slow battleships in a shallow harbor without destroying the repair facilities or the fuel depot, for that matter. You're probably thinking, ooh, oh, that thing's going to sink. It's already sank. It's sitting on the floor. That's how shallow the water was right there. So the Japanese launched a second. The second wave was a complete mess. Right? Pilots are circling around. They're not following directions. Everybody wanted to attach, attack the battleships, right? even though the battleships are already sunk. Um, they got absolutely nothing accomplished in the, second, in the second wave of the attack that did any good. So now, Nagumo's staff is begging with him, pleading with him, please launch a third wave. We've got to destroy the repair facilities. We've got to take out the fuel depot. But now Nagumo was nervous. He was afraid that he was going to lose one of his carriers. So he just turned the fleet around and sailed home. After the war, they discovered Yamamoto's diary. And in his diary, he said, 
he had been willing to lose two aircraft carriers on the attack on Pearl Harbor. How does Nagumo not know that? Did he not tell him that? Or did Nagumo just decide to ignore it? Who knows? We'll never know. Either way, all they did was create a big mess for themselves. A few years later, Nagumo regretted what happened because when he was defending the island of Saipan, where he would die to please his emperor, he noted to a colleague that the battleships surrounding the islands that were killing all of his men were the same ships that he had sunk at Pearl Harbor. And if you're wondering if you're going to see these guys again, the answer is yes. They're going to show up again. So let's talk about fundamentals a little bit. And let's talk about fundamentals, Japan versus the US, beginning of 1941. The Japanese were great at all the flashy stuff, right? They're great at night tactics, coming in with torpedo drills with, all, with their destroyers, had really sharp uniforms, their ships were beautiful, could drill in formation together. The Americans, not so much. We didn't really have any of that. We needed work. However, what the Americans were good at was the really boring stuff that the Japanese hated. We were great at logistics. We were really good at search and rescue. We were amazing at damage control. And, 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 and intelligence was just off the charts compared to the Japanese. These were things that the Japanese were terrible at. They didn't think they were important. And they paid for it very shortly, starting at the Battle of Midway. Look here. We've got the band back together. Right. The same thing, another I'm going to resign moment if you don't do this from Yamamoto, and guess who's in charge again? Nagumo on the scene. So Midway was supposed to be a good old-fashioned bushwhacking. Right? The Japanese are going to lure us in by attacking the island Midway. We're going to send our fleet there. Then they're going to rush it with their fleet and destroy it. Well, we turn the tables, and we ambushed the ambushers. So how did we do that? Fundamentals. First thing, intelligence. We could read their codes. And they didn't even know it. So we knew when they were coming. We knew where they were attacking. We knew what they were attacking with. We even knew that there was a diversionary attack that we didn't fall for. Fall for. On paper, we couldn't lose. I mean, really. So as soon as the battle started, other fundamentals came into play, like damage control. So the Japanese did severe damage to the US carrier Yorktown. But within an hour, within an hour, we had the Yorktown back up, underway, and launching planes. We damaged four Japanese aircraft carriers. They weren't even they weren't able to save not one of them. And then search and rescue. The US was able to pick we were able to pick up most of our downed flyers. The Japanese they lost so many pilots and so many air crew that they never recovered through the end of the war. A few years after, or actually it was 1943, we set a flight of P-38 Lightnings to kill Yamamoto. How did we know where he was? Fundamentals. Good intelligence on our part, bad radio discipline on the part of the Japanese. Fun fact. We almost let Yamamoto live. I mean, it was a serious discussion. Because his plans were so bad, we were concerned that they would replace him with someone better. But then we said, eh, this is really going to piss off the Japanese, so let's kill him. So we did. 
Okay, now talk about General Douglas MacArthur. Really interesting character. Um, one of the most controversial military figures, certainly in US history, maybe anywhere. So some said MacArthur had a reputation for being like more of a monarch than a general, like he had more of a royal court than he actually had a staff. Eh, pretty legit. I mean, after all, his office is called the palace, uh, and it was in the palace hotel. But he had another reputation, and that reputation was that he was maybe a little bit of a coward. Um, his troops, some of his troops on the Philippines called him Dugout Doug, uh, implying that he was afraid to go up the front lines, which wasn't true, by the way. He was in the front lines. He was no coward. And none other than George Patton, who is no person's coward, served alongside MacArthur during World War I. And in his, bi in his biography, he's quoted as talking about MacArthur under fire, and he just says, the guy was nuts. He's crazy. He exposed himself to fire all the time. Another good thing that MacArthur had going for her was his relationship with the Filipinos. He had a real affinity for the Filipino people. He respected their culture. He genuinely liked them. He said, give me 10,000 Filipinos and I will conquer the world. And he meant it. And the feeling was mutual. And that was a huge strategic advantage for the US. Because even after the Filipino and US Army surrendered in the Philippines, the Filipino people never stopped fighting only about 20% of the, uh, the Philippine islands were actually occupied by the Japanese. The rest was just a guerrilla mess that they never really quite got settled down. So here's where we start laying a little blame on MacArthur. So MacArthur, true to his ego, did not like the plan that we had for the defense of the Philippines. Right? We were supposed to evacuate Manila and head up into the hills and then fight from Bataan. Uh, he didn't like that plan. He had his own plan. You know what? He never got around to fully implementing it, probably because he was bored by defensive things. So when General Marshall, the head of the U.S. Army, knocked on his door and said, dude, implement Rainbow Five right now, MacArthur dithered, and he frittered away time, and his entire incredibly huge Air Force was completely destroyed on the ground. That was on him. Now... For the rest of the war, he did do an admirable job. But where MacArthur really shone, and where I think he saved his legacy, was in the post-war. So when the Japanese delegation went to meet his staff in the Philippines to talk about how we were going to occupy their country, what are the, um, you know, what, what are the things that they're going to have to do? This is not a negotiation. right? These are orders. right? This is what you're going to do. They expected harsh treatment, but they were surprised. The first thing we did was we flew in the air on a VIP aircraft, the C-57 right here, C-87 right here. Um, there's mess stewards to take care of their every need. They were served a nice lunch. In fact, the Japanese, being culturally sensitive or trying to be, tipped the mess stewards, even though they were in an army uniform, because they thought, well, I guess in America you tip everybody. <clears throat> So during the, dis during the discussions uh, in the afternoon, the Japanese raised some concerns that some of the language in the occupation orders might offend the Japanese and it might make them harder to cooperate. MacArthur had the wording changed because he understood, right? Cooperation was a good thing and he respected the Japanese culture. That night there was a dinner 
and I, you can only describe it as a banquet. One Japanese attendee, years later, said that he had warm memories of that evening with MacArthur's staff. How the hell does that happen? Right? How do you go, you're talking to your conquerors, you're talking to the people that are, sub that are subjugate your country, and this is a one-way meeting, this isn't a negotiation. How do you have warm memories of that? MacArthur, he made it clear that, hey, we were enemies then, we're not enemies now, let's get on with the job and rebuild your country. The Soviets had the bright idea and tried to say, you know what, we should help govern Japan just the way we're helped governing Germany. And MacArthur just told him to take a hike. He said, thanks, but no thanks. Never heard boo from them again, because not even Stalin was going to argue with MacArthur. The position that we occupy in the Pacific today is largely down to MacArthur, I believe. We have strong alliances with Australia, with the Philippines, and most especially with Japan, of all things. And Japan has one of the most powerful navies in the world. So I hope we can keep that alliance. Let's talk about Admiral Bill Halsey, another colorful character. He bowed to ride Hirohito's white horse through the streets of Tokyo. I mean, the press loved this guy. How could you not? He's pugnacious. He was aggressive. He's everything that the country wanted to hear in the early parts of the war, right? We were mostly on the defensive. This was a time for innovation. It was a time for shooting from the hip, and those were his strengths. In the early part of the war, he conducted carrier raids on Japanese bases just weeks after Pearl Harbor. He was the commander of the task force that launched the Doolittle Raid. And then he was sent to save the invasion situation on Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal, in my mind, was the turning point of the war because after the Japanese lost on Guadalcanal, they never expanded again from then on since from, from 1942 on, they're on defense the entire time. But then things got more complicated. The fleet got a lot bigger. Communications, coordination, planning became more important. And this was an era where Halsey started to make mistakes. He was main commander of the U.S. Third Fleet. The U.S. Third Fleet, surprise, right, had a reputation for being aggressive and opportunistic. Flagship was Battleship New Jersey. His counterpart, the Fifth Fleet, uh, was Admiral Raymond Spruance. Fifth Fleet had a reputation of being steady, stick to the mission, get the job done. His flagship, USS Indianapolis. Give you some idea of how powerful the U.S. Pacific Fleet was. If this has never been war game, but I'll fight you to the death on it. If the U.S. Pacific Fleet had met the Normandy invasion fleet at sea, it would have vaporized the Normandy invasion fleet out of existence. Who knows the difference between the US 5th Fleet and the US 3rd Fleet? Anybody? Go ahead. 3rd uh, Fleet was Halsey, 5th Fleet was Bruins. Yes. You know any other difference? That's all I know. Well, that's all there is, <laughs> right? That's the only difference, right? It was the exact same ships, the exact same sailors. It was the fifth when Spruins was in charge. It was the third when Halsey was in charge. Don't feel bad if you didn't know that because even the Japanese were confused for a while. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Oh my God, there's two of these, right? Same exact situation, different commanders, completely different cultures depending on who was in charge. So, 
the Battle of Leyte Gulf. This was the biggest battle, naval battle in the Pacific War. I think it might be the biggest naval battle in history. So in this battle, the Japanese used Halsey's aggressiveness, because they knew it was the third fleet, they knew he was in charge, to lay a trap. So we're busy invading the Philippine Islands at Leyte. We had a huge invasion fleet that needed protection. And the Japanese suckered Halsey into sailing away with the entire third fleet and leaving the invasion fleet to their mercy. They came at the invasion fleet from the north with a strong group of carry with a strong group of battleships and cruisers. They came up from the south with a strong group of battleships and, and cruisers. The only thing that saved them was the crazy heroism in the north of some destroyer captains and their crews. This is the USS Johnston. The USS Johnston literally sacrificed, its, sacrificed itself and the life of most of its sailors to protect that fleet. They weren't the only ones. The Johnston, by the way, was commanded by a, um, a Native American named Ernest Evans. The Johnston fought so hard, even as they were going under the waves, their guns were still firing. So the survivors are floating in the water. Here comes a Japanese destroyer. The survivors are thinking, okay, well, that's the end. They're just going to machine gun us right here in the water. We're dead, because that's what we did to each other in the Pacific. It was absolutely brutal. But instead, the destroyer drew close. The sailors on the destroyer manned the rails. The Japanese captains stood on the bridge, and they rendered a salute, and they sailed on. One destroyer crew in appreciation of what another destroyer crew did. What saved them in the south, here's our old friends again. So these old battleships executed a classic naval maneuver called crossing the T and they decimated a fleet of Japanese battleships and cruisers. In fact, they created so much carnage, they started to run out of ammunition and had to back off. That was the end of the Japanese fleet for the rest of the war. After that, it was just a shadow of itself. Halsey also flew into not one, but two typhoons, sailed into not one, but two typhoons. In the typhoons, he lost three destroyers. He had major damage to an aircraft carrier, Hundreds of U.S. sailors drowned. Anyone else would have been relieved three times over. But Halsey was just too popular to fail. And not only that, the Japanese were afraid of him. So he was useful in that regard. And I mean, he did fight well for the most part. But he did make those three crucial mistakes. One big mistake that Halsey had was a blind spot. How many of you have had a blind spot? You don't have to answer. I know I have. Right? And somebody had, usually has to tell you, hey, dumbass. <laughs> right. This is Captain Miles Browning. Miles Browning was Halsey's blind spot. My assessment of Browning, and probably everyone else's too, was he had a toxicity level of 10 and an actual redeeming qualities level of zero. Uh, don't take it from me, though. Take it from Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, who himself was no walk in the park, trust me, said of Browning, Browning was no damn good at all. He had no brains and no understanding. And Halsey just couldn't see it. He thought this guy was, you know, this is the left hand, my right hand man, I cannot live without. Browning made so many mistakes, I can't even mention them all. I mean, he got people killed. Um, but probably the dumbest and most amusing mistake, and probably the worst for him, uh, was sleeping and getting actually getting caught in the act 
with a wife of a fellow officer. Now, unfortunately for Browning, uh, that fellow officer happened to be a champion boxer, and Browning just took a tremendous beating. Nobody felt bad for him. Eventually, he was relieved, not by Halsey, but because his superiors had to step in and say, no, you can't have the guy anymore. He's an idiot. So let's talk about how Nimitz dealt with a similar situation. This is Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner, Kelly Turner, also known as Terrible Turner. The nickname ought to tell you something right there. There was one difference between Turner and Browning, though Turner was absolutely brilliant. I mean, the Japanese were terrified of this guy. They were trying to figure out how to kill him because they knew he was going to lead the invasion of the home islands. But Nimitz was making an informed decision. He said, I know the guy's a pain in the neck, but I'm going to have to work with him. He called him brilliant, caustic, arrogant, and tactless. Just the right man for the job. Just the guy we need. So sometimes you need to put up with a toxic person, but you need to know what you're getting into, and you have to be willing to manage that person. In this case, the mission was pretty important. So I want to leave you with some closing thoughts. Closing thoughts about self-awareness and about ego. You hear a lot about self-awareness. You touched on self-awareness. It's a big leadership thing right now. But self-awareness is nothing unless you can put your ego aside. Years ago, I was helping with a plant startup in Ensenada, Mexico. I was responsible for some computerized production machinery. One night, I'm sitting with the plant manager in a restaurant. I'm saying, hey, you know what? Plant gets started up. I ought to come down. We'll have a real party, et cetera, et cetera. He says, he says well, you better hurry up. So what do you mean? He said, oh, I'm going to get fired after a couple months. I said, how are you going to get fired? You're doing a tremendous job. He said, Glenn, he said, these people are running around getting the job done because they're scaring me. He said, that's it. He said, you can't run a plant like that. You have to be a people person. I'm not a people person. This man was wonderfully self-aware. Not only that, he was willing to put his ego aside to get the job done. So remember, self-awareness can save your bacon. But only, only if you realize when you're over your head, you're not afraid to let somebody else know and ask for help. Thank you.